Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. This week, we're going in focus where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. Today, we'll discuss selling a family business, legal, financial, and estate planning considerations. Today's show will cover the business, legal, and estate planning issues that arise when selling a family business. My guests will cover the preparation, negotiations, and closing of the sale. Special attention will be given to market trends, legal issues, and tax planning ideas. Today, we're fortunate to have three esteemed panelists who each share their wisdom on different aspects of this process. We have Bernadette Kuznicki, a partner at Rifkin Radler, who will be sharing tax and estate planning strategies. Her colleague, Avi Sinensky, also a partner at Rifkin, will be sharing his perspective as a corporate lawyer. And Michael Richmond, a managing director of the DAC Group, will be discussing his perspective as an investment banker to middle market companies. Before we jump into the meat of the presentation, if each of the esteemed panelists can take 60 seconds and share with our audience just a bit about themselves and their practice. Bernadette, let's first hear from you. Good morning. Um, As Jonathan said, I'm a tax partner at Rifkin, where I've been for the past two and a half years. Before that, I spent almost 10 years in the tax department at Farrell Fritz. My undergraduate degree is from Davidson College in North Carolina. I went to law school at Georgetown, and I have an LLM in tax from NYU. I would say I'm a tax generalist, but I do have a niche type practice in tax exempt organizations, which encompasses public charities, private foundations, and non-charitable nonprofits. More broadly, I have background in corporate and trust and estates work, which came about naturally in doing a lot of the work we do with middle market clients. In so many of the deals I've done, I was brought in to help on the tax piece, but the business turned out to be family owned, which automatically meant there were estate planning considerations and all of the various disciplines became interrelated as we worked to achieve the most efficient result for the client. I look forward to speaking with you today. Great, thank you. Avi, what about you? Yeah, hi everyone. Good morning. Um, I'm Avi Sinensky. Um, as Jonathan said, I'm uh, one of Bernadette's partners over at Rifkin Radler. Um, I work in the corporate practice. I live out here on Long Island with my wife and two daughters. And at Rifkin, I have what I would call a pretty broad based corporate transactional practice. Um, I work all the time with entrepreneurs, investors, and both you know, startup companies, growth companies, mature companies, as they navigate the entire corporate business life cycle. So everything from startup to raising capital, structuring shareholders and operating agreements and negotiating commercial contracts. Uh, Above all else, my primary focus is on mergers and acquisitions. Um, Just happens to be my favorite thing to work on. So lucky me. And um, we have a pretty industry agnostic practice over at Rifkin. And I have lots of experiencing representing clients on both the buyer side and the seller side. So often get to see the full picture. 
and our transaction sizes range everywhere from you know lower end small medium family businesses all the way up to multi hundred million dollar private equity transactions um so really you know any sort of uh merger and acquisition any sort of sale or buyout um is something that i have lots of experience in and MA has become a real passion of mine and i'm really excited to have the opportunity to spend a few minutes here today to talk to all of you about if you're a potential seller or advising a potential seller, what you could start thinking about in terms of planning their eventual exit. Great. Thank you, Avi. And Michael, we'll turn to you uh, to share a little bit about yourself and your practice. Jonathan, first of all, thank you for inviting me to this uh, to this webinar. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Michael Richmond. Um, I work for the DAC Group. DAC is uh, a boutique firm, an M&A advisory firm. We have been around um, since the mid 80s. And since that time, we boast over uh, 700 transactions. Uh, we work exclusively in the middle market uh, with business owners. Uh, we define uh, the middle market as companies with revenue anywhere from 10 to $400 million. Um, quite frankly, we boast those big deals, the $400 million deals, but most of our transactions are probably with companies with revenue of 20 to 120 um, million dollars. Um, we are located in Rochelle Park in New Jersey, um, and we have about 35 professionals, and we have regional offices uh, all around the country. I think what makes us a little bit different is uh, that we understand uh, perhaps the, uh, the nuances and psyche of a business owner making what could be the biggest financial decision of their lifetime. And uh, quite frankly, we, we work hard to, to maximize their value. Uh, we will search uh, you know, worldwide for the right buyers. I would say at one point pre-COVID, about 40 to 50% of our transactions had an international component that's dropped, but we, we still have um, you know, a large component of international. Um, in terms of my background, I was originally a lender. I worked uh, about, actually, I can't say most recently because it's about 15 years now I've been with DAC. Uh, but prior to that, I was a lender working for Bank of America, helping finance uh, buyouts. So I understand the perspective from the buyer's perspective as well as the lending perspective. So thank you, and I look forward to uh, talking more with you. Great. Thank you, Michael. Let's stay with Michael for a second, and then we're going to hear from Avi. Um, the first question is, how far in advance of a sale would a, um, should a company prepare for a sale? Also, what does that preparation look like? So first, we'll go to Michael and then Avi. So, you know, how far in advance? I mean, our attitude is uh, a business owner should, should act and run their business like they're going to own it forever, but be prepared to sell tomorrow. Um, and why is that important? Uh, that's important because um, business owners are constantly receiving unsolicited offers. They, um, they're being approached all the time these days. And they really, in many cases, have no idea what the, bis what the value of their business is. And um, in doing so, they, in not knowing what their, the value of their business is, they may walk away from attractive transactions or similarly, um, uh, you know, not uh, uh, accept too little um, for their companies because they don't understand their worth. So 
Uh, again, in terms of preparation, we think you know that should be done uh, perhaps years in advance. And um, you know, I guess I'll I'll talk in terms of some of the specifics that they can do uh, later on when it's back to my turn. Okay. Avi, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm I'm kind of on the same page. I mean, how does that? Uh, there's that Chinese proverb, right? The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Um, and I, I agree with Michael entirely. I mean, listen, like we all went to school, we all took tests, right? And we all know the difference between how we feel when we go into a test where we've been, you know, going to class and are prepared and when we crammed for it at the last minute. And um, the teacher generally know, knew the difference too. And about your buyers, you know, know the difference. Um, you know, when I'm on the buy side, it's always very clear. Is this a company that is well-run, well-organized, has all their stuff together, or did their lawyer just like make them start throwing together things at the last minute? Um, and it, it actually, it does make a difference. I mean, like think about when, when you sell a house, when you buy a house, you know, everyone talks about, you know, cleaning up the landscape, painting the house, making everything look nice and tidy, because often a buyer is going to make a snapshot decision. They're going to get a gut feeling about your business. And, you know, Michael is going to talk a lot about, I think, different ways to increase value. And those are th his, his issues are going to be much more quantifiable than mine. Um, but things like being organized and being able to respond to diligence requests properly and show a buyer that this is a well-run company does does impact value, even if it's not something that you can easily quantify the same way as, you know, increasing your EBITDA. So, um, and, in, and, and also to Michael's point, you know, in my experience, companies that run themselves as if they are available for sale will, will, will see the fruits of those actions because adding that level of professionalism to your operation, being a tidy organization, being well run will increase value. And to Michael's point, every business is for sale if the deal price is right. So just be ready to go. Okay, Avi, let's stay with you. Um, what are some of the key legal issues I should expect as part of the sale process? Um, so you mean in terms of preparation or in terms of actually when we get to the sale? In terms of whatever you think is relevant. Okay, so um, I, I would say there's, you know, a, a few things that I would focus on for if I have a, a client who is getting ready to um, to sell in, in, the, in the near to short short to medium future. Um, kind of what I was saying earlier is just be organized. Um, as soon as the process starts, as soon as you sign that letter of intent, you are going to be forced into starting the super fun process that we call due diligence which is going to basically mean opening up your books, opening up everything about your company to the buyer. Um, it can be very invasive, but it's just part of the process. And kind of like what I was saying, when, when they start asking for things and it goes unanswered, that raises red flags. And red flags lead to uncertainty, which leads to risk, which leads to lower value. And it makes everyone's life a lot easier when you have an organized seller, most of all for the seller, because the business owners that I work with, they are way too busy running their business day to day to be able to spend their days trying to track down the bylaws, trying to find every contract. So get organized now, stay organized. It'll make your future self a lot easier. Um, the other thing I would just say is figure out what it is about your business that makes it potentially valuable to a buyer. Is it that you have this, you know, rock star sweet C-suite? Do you have this, you know, awesome sales team? If that's the case, how are we gonna put something in place to make sure that those key employees stay with you through a sale and remain with a buyer 
after the sale? How are we going to incentivize them? If your main driver of value is a key piece of intellectual property, let's be super sure we have everything registered properly. Everything's up to date. There's no um, you know, possible infringement or, you know, competing claims out there for the thing that is making your business valuable. And, you know, depending on what your business is, there can be a whole myriad of things that is the key thing that makes it valuable and make sure that we've locked that down and protected it and that it'll be there when the time comes to sale. Right. Um, Michael, how do concerns about a recession and a high interest rate environment affect valuations? And if you could discuss any other relevant information about the current M&A market. So let me start with the latter part of, of, of that question. Actually, I really want to follow up on some of the things that Avi said, if you don't mind. And then yeah, I'll yeah, sure, please. Because, because you know, I, I think uh, Avi hit it right on uh, the nail on the head. Um, today, the level and the cost of due diligence uh, that the buyer does is probably two to three times as high and as expensive as it was five years ago. Now, why is this important to a seller? I mean, obviously, right. You don't want to run around, you know, like making a buyer drill when you when when you sell a company. But what's more important than that is a buyer wants confidence or a certain degree of confidence before they start their due diligence that they're not wasting their money. So they want to make they want they need confidence that the information provided by the company. And the financials are as accurate as possible. Um, you know, obviously the financials are going to be heavily scrutinized, and you know it's, it's very important to make sure that a company's financial systems are in good shape. One-time expenses, non-recurring charges, um, you know, will, will be added back. Personal uh, expenses, etc. Et and we've also been advising um, our clients, the selling clients to uh, look at themselves and do a lot of the work. So tie up key employees, absolutely impossible, uh, they're absolutely, uh, absolutely needed. Uh, we've also been advising sellers to uh, uh, understand their earnings better um, and in many times actually do what's called a sell side QV quality of earnings, where you will have outside accounts come in and look at the books and records of a company the exact same way a buyer would to uh, learn to identify problems, perhaps to correct them, or certainly to be prepared. Um, as Avi mentioned, there are other factors that need to be addressed as well. Um, and a company needs an owner or a business seller, or you as, a, as an advisor to a business owner should make sure that, that they're in place. Um, Avi, you touched on this, but it's really crucial that there'll be a second tier of management uh, in place. And, and Jonathan, when you asked earlier, how long should a company prepare uh, ahead of time? It could take years to put the second tier of management in place. So it's, it, you know, it's something that really should be started today. An owner wants to make himself as replaceable as possible because quite frankly, he's going to be getting a lot of money. And uh, the expectation is that even if he stays on, he's not going to be perhaps as motivated as he was before he sold his company. Um, and as much as we talk about a business being about numbers and multiples of EBITDA, Avi also touched on that sellers should understand uh, and your client should understand the value of their intangible assets, their customer relationships, the value of those, uh, the value of their IT to the extent it's unique, 
their market position, uh, market strength. It's really just not all about the numbers. And uh, just two other points I want to make here. I think a seller needs to have a clear vision of the future. Companies are not bought based on past earnings. Yes, their past earnings are heavily scrutinized, but companies are bought for what they can make in the future. So an owner should understand and be prepared to address, well, if they had additional funds to invest in the business, what would they do with it? Um, you know, could they identify capital improvements and efficiencies, perhaps robotics, uh, potential acquisitions, uh, new markets uh, and opportunities that, uh, that can be developed? Um, and, uh, you know, there's really, I just, last point, there's, there's two values to a business. There's a value to a business on, on, on a lower level that is on its own, and a buyer really has a much higher level of value for that business because they're looking for synergies, they're looking to, for, to value, to add value to their business. And it's important to understand the difference between those two values because it's the job of your advisors to help you capture as much of that difference um, as possible. So, um, you know, I'm going to pause now and I'll talk about what the recession is, is, uh, is impacting uh, on uh, the current environment. Uh, I'll address that next round. Okay. Um, I, one question I realized I wanted to ask, and I just uh, kind of skipped over, what are some of the most important legal, financial, and business steps a business owner should take if they are planning to sell their business in the near future? Um, we'll go to Avi first, and then we'll go to Michael. Yes, I mean, I, I, I talk kind of like generally about being organized. Um, one of the things that you really want to focus on is your contracts. Now, there's lots of small businesses, family businesses that when we say, you know, what are your contracts? The answer is we don't have any contracts. We do our we do our business on handshakes and and that and that's often the case. But, you know, kind of what, you know, Michael and I were both referring about earlier. Um, it, it sometimes depends on what is driving the value in your business. Like, do you have real two or three really key customers? Do you have a key supplier that is vital to the future operation of your business? And if you are doing that purely on a handshake, then that might work well for you. But when a new buyer comes in that doesn't have that same relationship with those customers and suppliers, that might give them pause because those people can walk away. And you might want to think about putting in contracts that commits both sides with those key relationships in order to make sure that they last. Now, to the extent you do have contracts, it's extremely important that you read your contracts or at the very least hire a lawyer to read them for you because there are certain provisions that exist in contracts in the ordinary course all of the time that can be major pitfalls to your transaction. You need to make sure that your contracts have language in them that allows them to be assigned in a transaction. You can't tell you how many times we've gotten into a situation on, a, on an M&A transaction and we have a key co contract and it requires the consent of the other person in order for it to be in a to be assigned in a, in a transaction, whether that's your lease, whether that's your supplier contract. And any time that you're involved in a transaction that requires the consent of a third party, it just adds delays, it adds complexity, it's the type of thing that you want to get out ahead of. So to the extent you have these types of provisions, an assignment provision, something that allows the other each counterparty to terminate under certain circumstances, if there's some sort of really unfavorable term in there, a most favored nation provision or something like that, you want to try to address these head on with regard to your existing contracts. 
And then more importantly, now that you're mindful of the fact that these types of things exist, when you go forward and you enter into new contracts, make sure that you are entering them into terms with keeping in mind a future sale because there's no reason to step into something. Let's go into it wide open and make sure that the contracts we're entering into today will give us whatever flexibility we need when the time comes for a future sale. Great. Let's go to Michael about some important legal financial business steps that a business owner could take. And you could also afterwards just kind of end with the current M&A market, given what's going on in the economy. Okay. Um, so I think Avi hit on several key points. Um, when you get ready to, uh, to sit at the table with a buyer towards the end, the last thing is you want is your key employees uh, saying, hey, sticking out their hands and saying they want peace. So it's important to nail down to the extent legally possible, and I'll leave that more to the lawyers, you know, to tie up your employees with, uh, I, I know non-competes are, are less enforceable, but certainly non-disclosure, non-competitive, um, and certain perhaps in terms of incentives to give them to join you um, and uh, they'll have success if, if, if you were successful. Um, same thing with uh, real estate. The next time, now again, it's a little tougher. The real estate market, particularly for warehousing, and um, is is very tight right now. But to the extent possible, to have your uh, your lease transferable to a buyer, not to have their consent required, so that they won't be sitting at the table um, raising rates. Um, one of the things, I, and I apologize, I didn't address the never got around to addressing the question of, of the the current M and A market. Jonathan, do you want me to do that now, yeah. or do you? Yeah, do right now be great. Um, you know, quite frankly, valuations are down from their peaks. I mean, th th there's no surprise about that. You read, you read that all the time in the newspapers. Um, I think what benefits uh, business owners who are on this call and their advisors is that the M&A market for middle market companies does not go lock and step with the large deals that you're reading about in the newspapers. So while those deals have fallen dramatically as much as some 60 to 70%, the M&A market for middle markets is, is not really down anywhere near that. I mean, we actually have a record pipeline, uh, a record list of, of active transactions. But you, I think it's important to understand that current valuations are down from their peaks. They're down a minimum to a half to one turn times of EBITDA. Um, and as I said earlier, companies buy future earnings and with a recession looming, um, it's, it's very possible that they could be buying into a lower, um, you know, lower earnings uh, uh, company. Uh, interest rates and banks. So the banks were really, I don't want to say, I don't know how many uh, lenders are on the call here, but the lenders were giving away the money uh, the last couple of years. They tightened up the purse strings. They're lending, they're providing less leverage, meaning they're less lending less into a deal. Interest rates are much higher. Um, so as a result, buyers have to put more equity into a deal. And as a result, that, um, you know, that decreases value. Uh, an interesting phenomenon that, that I've actually just discovered, and maybe it's due to my gray hair, is that, you know, the last recession was 2008 and 9, and, and I certainly lived through it, and, and perhaps many of you have as well. But a lot of people in key uh, decision-making positions, principals, and even uh, partners of private equity and, and, and strategic firms have, they will, this is their first recession. They don't understand um, that business does recover. 
um, that they, that a downturn doesn't last forever. And in many cases, they have to be educated uh, by you. So you need to be prepared or, or a seller needs to be prepared to, to show how well the company perform, performed during the last recession, why they are better positioned today to perform um, in, a, uh, in a downturn. And to understand finally in this, uh, you know, that, that as a result of the uh, um, concern about the future earnings, a seller may not be able to get all their money upfront. Um, they may be able to, they may be required to stand by their forecast and 10 to 20% of the valuation or the purchase price may be tied to performance uh, in the form of an, of an earn out. Um, the last question that uh, we could kind of wrap up this section with is for Michael. Um, it's, what other advisors does a seller need on his team before the sale? Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's uh, you know, a good question. And it's something that I think sellers need to address now rather than, you know, having a fire drill to find the right people. Obviously, they need a good investment banker. I mean, that's uh, a little self-serving there. But, um, you know, they need somebody who's going to act as the quarterback, who can give them advice, um, hold their hand, but more importantly, guide, guide them through a complex process. Now, um, you know, the gross value of a deal is, ni is nice, but what's really important is what uh, a seller will net after taxes. So they need good tax planning, uh, perhaps estate planning, um, good tax advice. Um, what is absolutely crucial, and a lot of companies make this mistake, is they use their corporate lawyer uh, as their M&A lawyer. Um, and it's really important. I can't stress the importance of having a lawyer um, experienced in M&A. The market is constantly changing. You know, I just mentioned earnouts two to three years ago, if you did a deal, you know, we would we would tremendously resist an earnout. Now they are, uh, I just read an industry rag and I forgot the number, but it's like in 80% of the transactions right now. So you need a, a lawyer who's familiar with the market, familiar with with what, what is uh, typical and what's not typical. And in addition, you need a good wealth manager uh, before and after a transaction. Again, before to provide a trust and estate planning, um, and afterwards, look, they're going to have a ton of money. Um, they need a place to invest wisely. And uh, they also have to feel comfortable that they can live on this through the rest of their lives. And I know, you know, wealth manager firms like Jonathan's have these models that can help an owner really determine what exactly they need to net on a transaction. So, you know, there are other people involved as well, um, but those are the key accounting um, uh you know, trust and estates, uh, tax planning, I think are the key, key areas. Great. Thank you, Michael. And you actually teed us up great for the uh, next segment. And Bernadette, we did not forget about you. You're going to be uh, uh, primely featured on the next part of this program. But before we do that, whoever's taking this program for credit, accountants or lawyers in Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York, please pay very close attention. I'm about to give you the code and write it down so you could fill it in the evaluations later. The code is E- Two, two. Again, E as in Eric, the number two, and the number two. And one final time, E22. Now we're going to switch gears a bit to discuss the tax and estate planning elements of selling a family business. And we'll turn to Bernadette for this portion of the program. So the first question, Bernadette, is on the tax and estate planning side, 
What are the big picture questions a business owner should be asking once they know that they are interested in selling a family business? Yeah. So the first question I would ask is, what am I selling? This sounds terribly basic, but you would be surprised at the number of clients who are at best unsure about their corporate structure. Are you an S corporation? Are you a limited liability company? Do you have multiple entities and you operate out of them interchangeably? If you're an S corporation, are all of your shareholders eligible S corporation shareholders? These are the kinds of things you want to be very clear on before you start speaking to potential buyers and, more importantly, their lawyers. You also, painful as it may be, want to identify any skeletons in your closet, so to speak. Have you been paying relatives for a no-show job or financing their cars? disguising distributions of dividends as compensation, running several of your personal expenses through the business, taking or giving undocumented interest-free loans. Now is the time to talk to your advisors to make sure everyone is on the same page and to discuss any actions that you can take that will make things easier earlier. <clears throat> A second big question is, is your business operating on real estate that you own? If it is, do you own it personally or is it owned by the corporate entity? Do you want to consider hanging on to the real estate and leasing it to the buyer? Do you want to sell the real estate and maybe do a 1031 exchange in order to defer some of the taxes on the transaction? If the answer to that is yes, then it is a good idea to begin researching properties early. Once the property that you're giving up closes, you only have 45 days to identify potential replacement properties and then 180 days to purchase one of them. At certain times in the market cycle, like now maybe, when there are not a lot of properties on the market that are attractive options, we have seen buyers get into a jam because they want to do a 1031 and they literally can't find something to buy. The more time that you have to scout out replacement properties, the better positioned you'll be. I've mentioned corporate structure a few times. Just to go a little bit deeper on that topic, and I think Avi and Michael both mentioned this, as you're preparing for a sale process, you wanna take a look at your corporate documents. While some businesses are great about keeping up with corporate governance, in my experience, the vast majority do not prioritize it. If you have a corporation, you'll want to look at your stock book and see if the share certificates are up to date. Do they reflect the current ownership? Or do they still show your dad as the owner and he passed away 25 years ago? Can you even find the corporate book? 
again, these are housekeeping items that are readily fixable, but you want to deal with them before there's a buyer in the mix. Another corporate item to take a look at is your operating or shareholders agreement. First of all, again, is it up to date? Meaning does it reflect your current ownership? Secondly, does it have any restrictions on or conditions to transfers of the equity? I alluded to this earlier, but once you begin the diligence process in connection with the sale, the buyer is going to ask to review all of your records. This will include financial statements, tax returns, customer lists, employment agreements, and operating or shareholders agreements. The last thing you want is to get to this point in the process and have the buyer come back and say, hey, I noticed in your shareholders agreement that it says you're not allowed to sell your shares unless you first offer them to every single one of your second cousins. Are you going to be able to get all of those consents by the end of the month? If you catch this prior to the sale process, you can just change the shareholders agreement. Next question is, what is the optimal timing for planning in relation to a sale and why? Yeah, so an Avi and Michael definitely answered this and I'm going to say the same thing. We can't emphasize it enough. The optimal timing for planning for a sale is before the sale process, well before the sale process. Almost, almost anything can be fixed with some lead time, but a lot of things cannot be fixed if you don't have that time. As an example, you may know that certain trusts are eligible to be shareholders of S corporations. These are commonly referred to as ESBITs or QUISTs. However, in order to become an eligible shareholder, the trusts have to file something with the IRS within a certain timeframe of receiving S corporation stock. We recently went through a sale process where we were doing standard diligence on an S corporation that had four shareholders, brother, sister, brother's trust, and sister's trust. The trust had gotten involved when the two siblings had done uh, some estate planning a decade earlier. However, no one realized that the trust needed to file elections with the IRS. As a result, technically, the S election had been blown 10 years earlier when the time to file those elections passed. And not only did the client not have a good S election, it was liable for 10 years of C corporation tax and interests. Now, the S corporation had been filing as an S for each of those years. And it's not like the IRS woke up that day and said, hey, we never saw that election from 10 years ago. Let's do an audit. However, the purchase agreement had a tax rep that the corporation was now incapable of making. In this case, what actually happened is the deal fell apart. However, we submitted a private letter ruling request to the IRS asking for retroactive recognition of the trust elections, a process that takes six to 12 months 
because at some point, another deal will come along for this client and the issue inevitably will arise again. In this case, it will be second time's a charm because we've now gotten the S um, trust shareholders um, back into the good graces of the IRS. This question also um, relates to the fact that planning is easier if it's done at your own pace and more importantly, without explaining yourself to an outside party in real time. So to emphasize, if you're even thinking about starting a sale process, review your operating and shareholders agreements, pay off any related party loans, research potential replacement properties, maybe put an agreement in place to incentivize your key employees to get rewarded upon a change in control if you want to make sure that they're there to help you through what can be a, a grueling time. Get your family members off the payroll and just do a thorough self-examination of any aspects of your business that can use some tidying. The next question, we're getting into a little more of the meat of the tax portion. Are there any options available to a business owner that will mitigate the tax consequences of a sale? Yeah, so generally the gating question is whether the sale is going to be of the business's assets or of its equity. Generally speaking, a buyer is looking for an asset sale. There's a few reasons for this. One of them is that if there's an asset purchase, the buyer will get a steps up basis in the assets. Additionally, in the asset purchase, the buyer avoids any of the risk associated with buying someone else's stock, such as the invalid S selection that I just described, or any undisclosed claims or liabilities associated with the stock. Some um, states don't recognize S corporation S elections, and there can be state taxes hidden that a corporation didn't realize it should have been paying. It's that sort of thing um, that they're worried about. Additionally, an asset sale can produce favorable tax deductions for the buyer in some situations, um, accumulated depreciation for eligible fixed assets, and amortization of intangibles, including, importantly, in these types of sales, goodwill. However, the flip side is that while an asset purchase can significantly benefit the buyer from an income tax perspective, it usually increases the tax burden on the seller, making the stock sale preferable to a seller. Generally, in an asset sale, there can be some ordinary and short-term capital gains on the sale of the underlying assets, for example, inventory. So what happens uh, when you're in this position? One solution that comes up a lot is called a tax gross-up. Most sellers factor this into negotiations regarding the purchase price, and they do not agree to an asset purchase until this is settled. A gross-up generally provides additional proceeds to the seller intended to make the seller whole with respect to any additional incremental taxes owed. So if your tax hit would be $100,000 on a stock sale, 
but it's going to be $140,000 on an asset sale, the buyer will compensate the seller to make them whole on that difference because the benefits of the asset sale are worth it to the buyer. In the typical gross-up arrangement, a calculation is performed as soon as the purchase price is finalized. This is important to keep in mind if you're in a negotiation scenario where the buyer is insisting on an asset sale. Another tool that is useful to have in your belts, and this is specific to an S corporation, is called an F reorganization. F is in Frank. This is a pre-transaction, mini transaction that essentially converts your S corporation into an LLC without a tax hit. An F reorganization is a corporate reorganization, a shuffling of entities that does not trigger tax per the tax code. There are several types of tax-free reorganizations and they're named after their tax code subsections in section 368 of the code. So there are A, B, C, D, E, and F reorganizations. In an F, the seller or the seller's owners forms a new holding company and then transfers seller stock into the holding company. So that seller shareholders own the holding company and then the new company owns a seller. So you have a parent substructure. The, the original company is a wholly owned subsidiary and the new holding company is an S corp. The sub becomes what's known as a Q sub, a qualified S subsidiary. Then the Q sub merges into a brand new LLC. Poof, your seller is now an LLC preferred by buyers all around for their total lack of rules. Um, the final question of this tax piece is if a business owner wants their children to share in the benefits of the sale, what is the most efficient way to accomplish this? Yeah, and this is the question we get all the time. And I want to start by pointing out that it is almost impossible to do this without rolling the dice at least a little bit. The reason is that any action taken on this front must be done, and this is obviously the theme of the morning, well in advance of a sale. And in order for whatever the action is to be legitimate and respected, it generally must be irreversible. So why is this rolling the dice? Well, it is always a possibility that a sale will not go through. We see this happen. And then the next phone call that we get is from the client parent looking to undo whatever transfers we made to their children in anticipation of the sale. The answer is no, we cannot. Part of our job when we do any pre-transaction transfers to children or other family members is to make sure that in the event they are challenged by the IRS, they survive that challenge. Thus, they are designed to be not reversible, which basically is what makes something a gift in the eyes of the IRS. So the first thing to keep in mind 
when you're looking to have your children share in the benefits of a sale is that if you plan to make a transfer to them, you have to be able to live with the transfer in a world where the sale doesn't happen. Okay, so let's assume that you've decided you can live with being in business with your children if the sale is not successful. Prior to a sale, you can transfer some amount of equity in the business either to them directly or to a trust for their benefit with there's lots of flexibility on how you might structure a trust and what kind of distributions they can get and when they can get them. As long as the transfer to the trust is complete, it's not like you can take the money back out of the trust. As you all most likely know, currently the federal estate tax exemption for one individual is just under $13 million, which translates to over $25 million for a married couple. When you transfer stock to your children, the value of the stock transferred is a gift and your remaining exemption, so your 13 million, is decreased by the amount of the gift. One thing to keep in mind is that if you do this properly, you generally can take certain discounts on the value of stock in a closely held business. There are discounts for um, a minority interest and for a lack of control and for a lack of marketability. Um, so these are um, ways that the value of the gift can be decreased in terms of how it's reported for tax purposes. Obviously, the gift is whatever it is. It's 50 shares of stock, well, you know, no matter how you're, how you're valuing it. So if you have sufficient time, what you should do is to get an appraisal done regarding the appropriate value and the appropriate minority discount to be applied on a transfer of a portion of stock. An appraisal can be significant and useful documentation in the event that the discount is challenged by the IRS. For example, you'll see someone gift what looks like $100 of stock, but file a gift tax return saying the gift was $80 of value by applying a minority or lack of control discount. If the IRS challenges that $20 discount you took, you took a 20% discount, so that you would use less of your exemption, you'll be in much better shape if you have an appraisal in your hands saying an independent professional told me that a 20% discount was appropriate. Another uh, thing to keep in mind on this topic is that the current estate tax exemption, the 13 million, is the highest it has ever been, ever. This means in 2023, you can gift more value on a tax-free basis than ever before in history. However, another fact about the current high exemption is that it possibly will be decreased in the coming year or two, depending on the changing tides of government. So if you are someone who is considering a significant gift in the next few years, it would be prudent to keep tabs on the status of legislation affecting this. No one knows what is going to happen on this front. We get the question all the time and, and we just, you know, we don't know more than you do other than following the news. But there has been talk from people who are in Congress 
about the exemption going down to five, three, or even $1 million. If the exemption is going to be significantly decreased like that, and you're somebody that is probably going to be making a gift, make sure you get that gift completed before the decrease, okay? Make sure you pay attention and you take an action to make the gift before you don't have the opportunity to do it anymore. Once the sale is underway, and unfortunately, this is usually when we get the question, how can I you know, get some of this to my children? There's really not much you can do to transfer the value to your children other than giving them the cash from the sale. So that's a dollar for dollar reduction on your exemption, which is fine, um, but that's not all that, that's not different than just giving them cash at any point, right? So it's critical that this piece, which many business owners care about a great deal, right? We're in the middle market. We have this generation that is aging out and looking to sell and looking to have their kids share in the fruit of their labor for the past 30 and 40 years. Um, it's important that you make this part of the discussions right from the beginning, um, because for many business owners, this is sort of the whole, this is their, their most important um, element of the deal. Great. And I see that we do have some time left. So I think this is a good point to just uh, circle back and ask any of the panelists that they have some final uh, thoughts, strategies, et cetera, that they like to leave to the audience. Um, I think Avi said that he had a couple things that he wanted, last uh, things that he wanted to share. Um, and then if Michael has anything else, uh, we could circle back with him as well. Yeah. I mean, so generally speaking, I always like to make sure that anyone entering into a into a sale not just understands the process for what they need to do to be ready but they should understand what it is that an actual transaction purchase agreement looks like because at the end of the day you're going to have to sign on to something that's going to bind you and you should know what you're getting yourself into um you know bernadette mentioned like the threshold question of stock versus assets um, buyers usually want to do asset sales for all the tax reasons that she outlined it's also because that allows them to take the assets they want free and clear of the li the historical liabilities of the business. Um, so, you know, when we talked earlier about contracts and assignment provisions, you want to be able to accommodate the buyer's approach to being able to buy assets if you can, because that'll just give you more flexibility. That'll give you more opportunity to get the value that you want if you're able to structure the transaction in the way that the buyer wants. Um, the other two or three very key provisions in a purchase agreement that every buyer should expect. Um, number one, reps and warranties. You are going to be expected to go through an entire section, sometimes it could be 20, 30 pages long, where you are making statements of fact about everything that is true about your business. You have to, you're going to have to tell them about every litigation you've had, every problem with an employee that you've had. You're going to have to say that we've paid our taxes, that we've complied with all of different sorts of laws. So let's make sure that we're operating our business in such a way that we're going to be able to make those representations. Because the key thing about those representations is that they tie into the other key part of a purchase agreement, which is the indemnification section. And this is one of those things that I often take sellers by surprise. I think many sellers expect that it's kind of like when you when you sell your house, you sell the house and now it's the buyer's problem and whatever happens, what ha happens, they're taking the risk and buying a business. And that's not usually the case when it comes to selling a business. Typically a buyer is going to expect 
that if you told them things about their business, for example, the things we just talked about, you're you know, you haven't had any employee litigations, you're not being sued by any customers. If you tell them those things and they turn out to not be true, if you tell them that your business generated certain levels of financial um, success based on your financial statements, and it turns out there were errors in there that now affects the value of the business, the buyer is going to have the right to come back to you and make a claim and say, you sold us a business that you claimed was worth $100 million, but because of the things that you failed to tell us, your business was not worth $100 million. It was worth substantially less than that, and we expect to be made whole for the difference of what you caused us to lose in our value. Now, and listen, there are ways to work around that. There are baskets, there are caps, there are ways to carve out certain liabilities. But the key point is you gotta go in eyes open and understand that you're going to have to sign on the dotted line. You're going to have to make all sorts of promises to a buyer and you're gonna be expected to live by them and stand behind them and hold the buyer harmless if they are not true. Um, and then the, the absolute final thing that I will stress, because this is something we see all the time, do not under any circumstances sign a letter of intent without the help of an advisor. Because what we get all the time is, hey, I signed an LOI, can you help me with the deal? And the reason why clients think that it's not a big deal is that almost every single letter of intent in the history of the world has language in it that says it's non-binding. And that is true. There is nothing that is in an LOI that will make you do a, a transaction under the terms in the LOI. And you can always try to renegotiate terms in an LOI after the fact, but it's always going to be a challenge. It's bad form. It's going to erode trust with your buyer to come back and try to retrade on material issues that the buyer thinks that they've already bargained for. So, you know, it, it, it will cost you a little bit more money upfront to have the advice you need but it's nothing compared to the material terms and conditions that you will have lost by virtue of the fact that you just signed an LOI and now you're going to possibly either be stuck with those terms or potentially ruin the deal by trying to retrade. So just when, as soon as the process starts, bring in the advisors, get your team together and do it the right way because it'll ultimately lead to greater value when closing time comes. Right. Thank you, Avi. And Michael, did you want to add anything before I close out? Sure. Um, I don't want to keep anybody from their coffee, but, um, you know, I, I think a lot of good things were said here. Um, I, I think, uh, look, companies get sold without preparation. That's a fact. We get brought in all the time. Companies get an offer. We work on it. We work them through process and we still can make changes, you know, to the LOI, you know, to the structure and add value. But I think I think what people have heard today is that uh, what's what's best practice. You hear of companies being sold in a range of value six to eight times EBITDA, six to you know eight to ten times EBITDA, and the question is really why do some companies get the lower end of that range and why do others get the higher end of that range, or why do higher some companies net more after tax? And I think proper preparation is the key. And that's not to say that you know we haven't sold companies without preparation. Quite frankly, we have. But I think if an owner wants to maximize the value of the business and has time, I think they want to work with, you know, the the, the uh, you know Bernadette on trust and estates planning. You know, with Avi, you know, preparing you know the, the corporate you know papers to make sure they're accurate. 
And certainly we can give guidance to a company the things that they can do now that when they are ready for sale, they can maximize the value. Thank you, Bernadette, Avi, and Michael for sharing your insights on selling a family business. One big takeaway for me is preparation, which came up multiple times throughout the talk today. If you're contemplating selling your family business, or even if you may want to consider it years down the road, it's important to start planning today. This means staying organized and positioning your company to be attractive to buyers. If owners take this mindset, it will make the subsequent sale process much easier and potentially more lucrative for your family. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's a spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.